You all can be seated. You can open your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we have been and will be for the next numerous weeks. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 today. We're going to look at the second half of that chapter. We'll start in verse 7 in a moment. I wanted briefly to mention uh, an event that is coming up before we get into the word. An event that's coming up on April the 24th. Uh, We are going to be having an event that Saturday night. It's in lieu, in some ways, in lieu of our annual art gala. It's still a missions-focused event. It's called Road to reaching the nations and what we're going to do that night is we're going to have an event here from six to eight where people of all ages are invited we're trying to make it kid friendly we're going to have activities and videos and things that are engaging for them but informative and and helpful for us as adults as well but we're going to start uh, in the auditorium I believe briefly and then we're going to move to different stations around the church building and we're going to imagine what does it take for someone to from start to finish to, to feel the call of God to go to the nations with the gospel to be evaluated by their church family, by us, to be equipped to go, to be actually sent, and then to actually, what does it take to do the hard work of getting to know a culture and a language and invest, and how do you teach them, how do you establish a church? And we're going to try to imagine from start to finish what that process looks like, whether we end up being goers or whether we are just, not just, but whether we are senders and supporters of people who are goers. And so it's a free event, it's for kids up through adults. Uh, We are asking you to, to register in advance for it though. Uh, So if you go to our church website christcovenant.org forward slash road since it's called Road to Reaching the Nations. Uh, You can see more details there. You can register for there. Even if you're able to do that this week, that'd be helpful for us to start to know who to plan on being here, divide people up into groups, things like that. It's going to be a wonderful uh, event, and it's in in the day in advance of a sending Sunday, a commissioning Sunday that we're going to have for a family in our church. We'll hear more about them that morning. I've got to be sensitive with recording going on of what they're going to be doing, but we're going to be commissioning them that Sunday, that first Sunday that we're all together as a church family one worship service at 10:15. We're going to be uh, praying for them, sharing about what they're going to be doing. We're going to be singing from the Word of God the, the call to go to the nations on that Sunday morning that follows, the 25th. So it's going to be a wonderful weekend, uh, the 24th, that event at 6 o'clock, and then the 25th, we'll start having one worship service at 10:15. Again, it's also the morning we're going to start having life ed classes, which I'm super excited about, at 9 o'clock for kids up through adults as well. So I wanted to share that. I'm excited for that. hope that you get excited for that, that you you can participate in that event and that entire weekend with us. Well, as we come today to things and then just struggle and difficulty that we walk through in life, uh, I wanted to acknowledge, I, I usually, when I come into the pulpit, feel fairly good about at least what God has brought me to and what I'm ready to share. This week has been an exception to that for whatever reason. I have studied this. I've thought about it. I have prayed about it. And I, even I told my wife last night, like, I, humanly speaking, do not feel good about this. I have felt my weakness to, to take this text, which is absolutely glorious, and to try to to form it into thoughts that are helpful and organized. And I have felt my weakness. And then on top of that, I think part of why I've struggled with it is I'm going to do a little self-diagnosis for a second. I think that I have a pinched nerve in my neck. And so the last couple of days as I have sat down to, to prep this and pray and think about it, I have constantly just had this like firing pain in my neck, which medicine helps with. It feels a little better right now. Uh, but it, it has been a reminder, and I think God has kind of a sense of humor. He is the one who created humor that even as I have studied this text, as we're about to read it, this passage about our inability and then pains and how God works through those things, 
things. Uh, it's not lost on me that this week of all weeks has been the week that I've had these experiences. And so I, I'm going to read this passage for us. It's going to have a lot to do with weakness as a Christian and affliction, pains, difficulties that we go through as Christians. Um, Paul is going to have much to say to this church, and then the Spirit, I think, will use this text to speak to us as a church and us as Christians about those very things, about our own weakness and about the sufferings, the afflictions that we walk through in life. And it's going to give us perspective as we do so. So if you have found 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18 is what we're going to read today. And this is also a reminder to me while I'm about to read this passage. Anytime any man is up here to preach, the best part of their sermon is when they read the passage. Okay, That is the best. So if you get nothing else out of what I say, you will hear from God himself through this text, and it is a glorious text. So I'd encourage you to pay attention to what God said through the Apostle Paul to this church at Corinth. So follow along with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. This is the word of God. I want to walk back through this passage. Your, your copy of scriptures probably has three short paragraphs here, and I want to walk back through this text one paragraph at a time and share kind of a, a summary thought of what I think Paul's seeking to communicate through that paragraph and its relevance towards us as we walk through these three uh, portions of this section of his letter. And so I want to first look at verses 7 through 12. And if you're a note taker, uh, the, the way I would summarize this message, this portion of Paul's letter to this church would be this, is that our weakness and affliction are integral to God's plans. Our, our weakness and affliction are integral to God's plans. Integral just means like they're essential. They're, they're in, uh, you can't get rid of them. They are part, they are God's design. Uh, they are part of his plans for our life. Part of his plans for the world is our suffering. They're not just optional. They're not like just things he kind of deals with if they come up. They are part of his plan. 
our, our weakness and our affliction, our part of, they're baked into his plan for our life. And you start to see that right out of the gate in verse 7, where Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. When he, he uses this metaphor, and it's probably a familiar metaphor to some of you at least. Uh, there was a band even when I was a teenager called Jars of Clay, and I just liked their music. I never knew why they called themselves that until I later read this passage. Uh, but when Paul talks about a treasure being in jars of clay, he's using a metaphor that would have been very familiar to people in those ancient times of a very valuable possession, a, a treasure even he calls it, something that was of immense worth, being put inside something that was fragile, something that was not impressive at all. And so this word picture that he's giving to them was that there is this good news of Jesus, this valuable treasure that that nothing else can compare to, this message of Jesus. He called it, even in the very verse before, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. There's this message about Jesus, him being crucified for us and raised for us and someday returning for us. There's this valuable treasure that God gives to human beings, that he has given to humanity this message of Jesus but then he says what God places that inside is a measly jar of clay that this thing that is fragile that can break that is not impressive God he's not saying that that God is placing it in a a iron box or some gold on some silver platter anything like he's saying that God takes this valuable treasure and puts it inside something that is totally unimpressive very normal fragile breakable Uh, that is what God puts the treasure into and that is us we are the jars of clay like sometimes we like to think that we're these impressive beings we are jars of clay in this metaphor that that are smashable that are not impressive, that that can get cracks, that can break, that someday uh, uh, we will wear out. Someday our bodies will give up and give way. Like the gospel is the treasure, the jars are Christians. And, And God takes this treasure and he's not embarrassed about it all. He does it on purpose. He puts that treasure inside jars of clay. And interestingly, uh, I believe this is true. I, I read about faded your place and we're looking for the treasure. They might look in more obvious places, but they might not look in just these clay pots that you have laying around. And so sometimes people actually would do this. They would take valuable possessions, they place it in clay pots, in clay jars, so that the treasure wouldn't be found, so that they could keep it to themselves. But what Paul is saying in this text is that when God has this treasure of the gospel, he puts it in jars of clay not to hide it, not to like keep it from being seen, to keep it from being appreciated, but in God's economy, how he works, he puts it in these clay pots for it to be seen, for it to be seen as impressive, for it to be seen as great, not to hide it, but for it to be seen. And that's what I mean when I say, and we'll see in this text, it's fleshed out more, but that God purposefully puts this treasure in us. It's integral. Uh, The fact that we are weak, that we are fragile, is not an accident. God chose who to put this treasure into, and he put it into mortal, frail human beings on purpose. And you see in this text a few hints of why he does that. This text doesn't answer all our questions about weakness and affliction, but it does answer some. And we see some reason of why God chooses us, mortal, uh, breakable, fragile people. We see some of the reason why God puts the treasure of the gospel into us. And the first reason you see is in the second half of verse 7 and then verses 8 and 9, that chunk. And I would say this, that God, by using weak vessels like us, 
by putting the gospel into breakable vessels like us, God shows his power. That's explicitly what Paul says at the end of verse 7, right? He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show something. Like there, there's a reason God put it in, in clay pots like us, is to show something. He says what it's to show is the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The reason that God places the gospel in broken, or at least breakable, vessels like us is to show where the true power comes from. That it does not come from us, it comes from him. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but God could have orchestrated the, the ministry of the gospel in any way that he saw fit, right? He could have given it to the, this message to angels, these impressive beings who don't have sin, who aren't mortals. He could have given it to them and let them spread it around the world. That may feel weird to us, but God could have done it that way, right? But instead, God gave this message to frail human beings like you and like me. He put this treasure in breakable, fragile vessels. And the reason he did it, at least one reason that he's done it that way, is so that when the kingdom of Jesus advances, when people are saved, when people start to be changed, it will be unmistakably because God has changed them, not because we have. If, if the, the messengers were these impeccable, impressive people, like who had all this eloquence and skill and diligence, and we could just kind of muscle it together, we could flex and just make people come to faith, then it would be very unclear who was actually doing the saving, wouldn't it? it would, we would wonder, is it that person's cleverness and skill and ingenuity and diligence, or is it God that's doing it? But the fact that we are these frail, fragile vessels, and we take this gospel and we try to deliver it to other people, and then it changes them, shows that the power is from God and not from us. That is important. God is saying he has done that on purpose. He's placed his treasure in jars of clay to show that he is the true power source. That when, and this is important for us because like, sometimes if we see people saved, if we see people, if we see fruit and success in a ministry in a church, we're tempted to think that it's because of our efforts. It's because of our skill. It's because of our expertise. It's because of our hard work and diligence. And God does not want us to believe that. He wants to remind us not to belittle us but to keep us humble you are a clay pot the the power is in that treasure the power is in that light that has shown into your heart it's not in you yourself and he wants us to remember that to never be under any illusion that ministry success comes from our strength from our skill it has always will always come from him and you see this idea of him showing his strength continued in verses eight and nine these are some some famous uh, juxtaposing of phrases where he says, uh, we are afflicted but not crushed. We're perplexed but not driven to despair. We're persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. What he's saying in that is, at least one thing that he's trying to say that is there are certain things that we cannot protect ourselves from, right? As Christians, we are these frail vessels who sometimes are afflicted, sometimes are perplexed, sometimes are persecuted sometimes are struck down in life we we cannot even protect ourselves like we can't organize our life where we just are in this insulated bubble of protection and security we always are going to have hardship come to us we're always going to have people who mistreat us who speak against us we're going to have sufferings and trials that come even physically relationally economically in our life we are utterly incapable of having security on our own uh, we don't have the skill, we don't have the strength to do that. But what Paul is saying in those phrases is even though we're afflicted, 
We're not crushed. Even though we're perplexed as these uh, jars of clay, we're not despairing. Even though we're persecuted, we're not forsaken. He's saying that even though we can't protect ourselves from hardship, we can't live in this bubble of protection, he's saying there are certain things God can and does protect us from. That he is the strong one. Even when he allows us to be perplexed and persecuted and struck down, there are certain places God draws line and says, this will not take place. I, I am strong enough to protect you from this, and I will protect you from this. And the things that he says he will protect us from are destruction from his hand, right? We may still face opposition and, and pain from fellow human beings, but we will not be destroyed by God. We may be forsaken by fellow human beings, but we will not be forsaken by God. There are things we cannot protect ourselves from, but God says, I am the strong one. I will protect you from certain things. I will allow certain things, but I will protect you from certain things, the things that are eternal, the things that matter most. I can and I will protect you as you are united with my son, Jesus. Paul is saying in these juxtaposing phrases that we are weak, but God is strong. That there are things we cannot and never should try to protect ourselves from, but God has committed to protect us from ultimate harm, from ultimate destruction. Our our weakness gives a chance for him to show his strength. But our our suffering, I would say, our affliction, you see in verse 10 through 12, our affliction gives opportunity for God to manifest the life of Jesus. Paul says that a couple times, doesn't he, in verses 10 and 11. He talks about how we carry in the body the death of Jesus, and then both so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Or some variation, he says it's slightly different. But he's saying the reason we have death, the reason we have suffering, the reason we have affliction that God allows in our life as these weak vessels is so that the life of Jesus can be manifested. So what, it, what he's indicating there is that in the absence of suffering, in the absence of affliction, there's going to be some sort of limitation of, of how the life of Jesus can be seen in our life. Uh, how how the, the power of Jesus, his, his ability to, to work in us, there's going to be limitations to what can be seen if we just have blessing and prosperity and ease and simplicity in life. But when we carry around death, when we have these hardships that come to us, affliction that comes to us, it's like this gaping hole out of which the light of Christ can shine in ways that other people would never have seen if we were just these impeccable vessels. If we just experience bliss and joy and prosperity and health, people may look at our life and they may interpret that totally wrongly. They could think, well, that's just random, that's just chance. That, or maybe they might think, well, he, he's worked hard, she's been a good person. Maybe it's like karma or something like that, that, that it's working its way out in this person's life. But when someone experiences affliction, when they experience this death of Christ, this hardship that's coming to them over and over and over again, and they still exude joy, they still exude peace, They still exude contentment. That unmistakably speaks something to anybody who would have actual ears to hear. That that there is life working in this person that you can't explain in human terms. That there is something profound going on in this person that is overcoming the the, the temptations to despair. That's overcoming the the temptations to be sorrowful and mourning and, and despairing of their circumstances. There is a person that is at work in them. And so Paul says that we have this affliction, we carry around this death so that the life of Christ can be shown. 
And if we didn't have that affliction, if we didn't have that suffering and trial, then the light of Christ wouldn't be able to shine as brightly. The life of Christ wouldn't be able to be seen as clearly by those who would look at our lives. And so we see in this first paragraph, I would say, that our weakness and our affliction are integral to God's plans. They are purposefully part of how he has arranged our existence, is that he lets us remain in our weakness. He lets us have fragility about us so that he can show his power and so that he can show the life of Christ. It is not accidental. It's not as if God just uh, had people go about their life and some hard things come up and then God's like, oh, let me figure out how to deal with this. I'll kind of smooth things over. It has been, our weakness, our affliction has been part of God's plan from the beginning. He has purposes in it. It's not just something that accidentally happens and he works it out. It's something that he embeds in our life. It's something that he purposefully places in our life so that he can work, so that he can be seen as a strong one, so that he can be seen as the Savior. But in the second paragraph, and this one will be a little briefer and then we'll spend some more time on the last paragraph. But in the second paragraph, verses 13 through 15, as he continues talking about this idea of affliction and suffering and weakness, I would summarize verses 13 through 15 this way, very simply, is that our hope in affliction is justified. Uh, our, our hope when we are afflicted is justified. It's not just fanciful, wishful thinking. It is actually justified for people who are experiencing affliction to have hope in their hearts. That is the proper response for those of us who've had that light of the knowledge of Jesus shining in our hearts, is to have hope in the midst of affliction. In this paragraph, he, Paul, in verse 13, he references Psalm 116. I'd encourage you to read that psalm sometime. It's a powerful psalm. But he's quoting from it, this statement, I believed and so I spoke. And he's saying that, that he shares a similar sentiment. He's sharing a similar experience as the person who wrote that psalm. Uh, that God's people, even in ancient days to him, ancient days to us, have had this experience of even when we are crushed, even when we are persecuted, when we are suffering and hardship, there's something within us still that trusts God to work. That the trust that God will ultimately deliver me. Even if he doesn't rescue me from this thing that I'm facing, he ultimately will deliver me in the end. Uh, that has been the, the expression of hope and belief in God's people throughout all time. And Paul is latching on to that phrase from Psalm 116 and saying that is true of him. He's saying, I believe this and so I speak it. I'm not just saying words to you guys to try to, to get you some phony sense, some hollow sense of encouragement. I genuinely believe that even though we are afflicted, that God will ultimately deliver us. Ultimately, God will rescue us, and that is what I'm speaking to you. My, he's saying that his hope in the midst of affliction is justified, and he's trying to help them see that their hope in the midst of affliction is justified. There's good reason to have hope in the midst of affliction. And his evidence, his reason for doing so, for believing that deliverance will come, is not just pulled out of thin air. It's grounded in an event that actually took place in history. It's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate last Sunday, which we honestly celebrate every Sunday as we gather together, the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, in verse 14, he's saying that he knows that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us, talking about himself and the apostles, bring us with you, Corinthian church, into his presence. He's saying, 
and remember, this is a man who met the resurrected Jesus, Paul. He, he, he met him on the road to Damascus. And he's saying, the same God who raised Jesus up, who delivered him from his affliction, delivered him from the grave, someday is going to raise us up as well. In the meantime, he's going to allow affliction. He's going to allow us to be crushed. He's going to allow us to be mistreated. He's going to allow us to be persecuted. But someday, he says, God will deliver us from death itself. God will deliver us from suffering. God will deliver us from pain. God will deliver us from sin. God will deliver us from Satan. God will deliver us. He has bedrock assurance of this. And he has great hope as he faces affliction himself. This theme runs through this whole letter. This guy who is so beaten down. He's tempted to despair of life itself. He, at the same time that he's feeling those things and the brokenness of his body and the brokenness of the relationships that he's had with people and the mistreatment that that has come to him, as he's experiencing all these things, he still has hope that, and he is confident that someday the Lord Jesus will raise him up as well. That, That someday, even on the other side of death, that God will bring him and bring all of God's people into his very presence. He has confidence that someday deliverance will come and he's speaking it to these people who are afflicted. He's saying, someday our suffering will end. God raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise us from the dead. I would say as we face affliction, sometimes when we face suffering and we feel our weakness and our frailty, how fragile we are, and we read something like the first paragraph, we think, Man, God doesn't really care about me. He's just using my life to try to show stuff about himself, like to show off uh, his power, to show off, like wouldn't it be just better, like if you could just make life a little easier for us? It kind of seems, God, like you're, maybe even if we would have the audacity to say things like this, that God, you're kind of selfish about wanting glory for yourself, and uh, why couldn't you just make life easier for us? But you see in verse 14, the Lord's heart not just to show off himself, although he is, and he ought to show himself off, but he, you see his heart to bring us into his presence. That he, when he sees our affliction, he, when he allows it, when he seeks to even use it, he's not just messing with us. He's not detached from us. It's not as if he's just letting us go through all this difficulty to show off things about himself, but he cares for us. He cares for you. He, he wants to and will bring you, if you're united with Jesus, he will bring you into his presence for all eternity. That is something to long for, to look forward to, and to know that is in the heart and mind of God himself. The same God who allows affliction, who allows suffering in your life, is the same God who someday will raise you up and bring you to be with himself. So when you are in the midst of affliction, you can trust him. You can trust that his heart is not just to mess with you. He is certainly not detached from you. He's not distant from you. But he is working and bending all things towards a final existence where you are with him and where you are with his people forever. And so may we never think that God is just cold and distant I love even in that Psalm 116 that Paul is quoting here, and part of why I'd encourage you to read it. If you read that Psalm, he quotes verse 10, I believed and so I spoke. If you keep reading that Psalm, verse 15, just five verses later, the psalmist said, "Precious," and hear this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That sounds like a very morbid thing, but he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God longs for his people to be with him like we'll see next Sunday Pastor Larry has the privilege of preaching about our our resurrection bodies and, and what those things will be like but the heart of the Lord is for his people to be with him 
And while we are here in this earth, we are joined with him by the Spirit already, but someday there's coming a day on the other side of death or the other side of the return of Jesus when we will be with him forever, face to face, where we will be with him for all time. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So our hope in affliction is justified. It's not just fanciful, wishful thinking. The last paragraph, verses 16 through 18, I would summarize this way. that to persevere in affliction, we need perspective. So to persevere in affliction, we need perspective. We have affliction in our life. We are jars of clay. We are crushable, and we do experience cracks and weakness and brokenness in our life, pain and suffering in our life. But we are called to persevere in that, aren't we? Uh, you see Paul kind of start to, to bend this way in verses 16 through 18. He says as he starts verse 16, we do not lose heart. He says, so we do not lose heart. Because he remembers the resurrection, because he remembers uh, what is true about Christ and what will someday be true about us, he says, because of all that, we don't lose heart right now. There's this perspective that God gives to us about our current state and about the future state that allows us to face affliction, allows us to persevere as we face affliction even in our own lives. And Paul, Paul says, he acknowledges how difficult life can be, doesn't he? He, said, he talks about this outer self and this inner self for Christians. He talks about how this outer self, this existence in this world, our bodies, our minds, our relationships is wasting away, he says in verse 16. That is wasting away. He, he's under no illusion of, of pleasantries in life. He's saying these bodies, these minds, the, these relationships, these buildings that we build, these empires that we build, all of it is wasting away. It, it is dissolving in a way. And we feel overwhelmed when we have grief. We feel overwhelmed when we have pain. We feel confused when God lets death come to us or sickness come to us. We have hurt, we have grief in this life. There are times in life where, and some of you may be feeling like this right now, where there feels like there's nothing solid. There feels like nothing is staying, like it's all just wasting away. Slowly but surely, this is all going away. My health, my family, my friends, my money, this stuff is slowly just dissolving away in this life. And that can be so disheartening that it is no wonder people lose heart when suffering comes to them. When they, when they just see all this stuff wasting away like sand just being washed away by the tide. And, and they have nothing to hold on to. They have nothing to grasp onto. That is when we lose heart. But God in his kindness offers us perspective. He offers us sight to see things that the world does not see. That the world can see those things wasting away and they can do nothing but despair and nothing but try to grasp on to what they can before it falls out of their fingers. But Paul says there is a different, there's another reality happening in us at the same time. He says this outer self, this, this world, this life is wasting away. But he says there is an inner self in the life of a Christian. An inner self that he says quite the opposite is being renewed day by day. That it is staying solid and that it in some ways is even improving and growing healthier and stronger. And the, the longer that we see that, that wasting away of our life and, of our, our, and we experience suffering and grief, the heavier those things feel, the, the more they feel like a burden and a weight that we just long to cast off. But thank God he gives us eyes to see that other dimension of reality, that there is more to life than just my suffering. There is more to life than just this physical earth, than just the, these trials that I am dealing with. There is, there is an inner self. There is life that is, we'll see this as we go through Second Corinthians, there's this life that has already begun within a Christian. 
It's not just something we wait for on the other side of death, but there is new creation already happening inside of me. God has placed his spirit inside of us, right? We are those jars of clay, but we're not hollow. We have the treasure of the gospel. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And when we're tempted to just look at the vessel and the cracks that are happening and the the assaults that are coming against us and things that are opposed to us, we must remember what is unseen inside. That there, there is God himself living within us. There is new life that has begun within us if we are united with Jesus. And that's where Paul talks about this importance of looking to the things that are unseen to the world. That, that we have eyes to see if we are Christians. We have eyes to see things that the world does not. We have, there's dimensions of reality that we have access to that we can see that the world does not. And Paul is telling us, when you feel your own weakness and inability, he's saying, remember what's inside of you. Like, remember where you belong. Remember who is at work in your life. And that is what allows you to not lose heart. When you know that God is at work within me. God is bending my life towards glory, not towards suffering. He's bending it towards eternal life, not towards just this momentary life that will, will wash away, that will dissolve away. And he calls us to see uh, what the world does not see, to set our eyes on the things that are, seen, that are unseen, not the things that are seen. And this is the beauty of, he mixes metaphors throughout this section, but I love how back in verse 6, which we saw last week, he talks about this light shining into us. And light helps us to see, doesn't it? It helps us to see things rightly. It helps us to have perspective when, we, when that light of the good news of Jesus shines into our hearts, it helps us to see things rightly in the present. It helps us even in the midst of our suffering to know that God has made me into a new person. It helps me to remember and helps me to know that light of the gospel helps me to know that even and the world is frowning at me, when they're assaulting me, when there's suffering that's coming to me, even when all that's true, that God is presently smiling over me, to borrow a, a phrase from Pastor Larry. The, the light of the gospel helps me to see that and know that. The light of the gospel helps me to know that even when I'm perplexed and confused as to why God is allowing this difficulty in my life, the light of the gospel helps me to see that God is wise and that God is sovereign. Like that he knows what he's doing like, and that he's for me. The, the cross speaks that to me. The, the light of the gospel shows that to me even when everything outside of me, the things I can see in this life tempt me to think otherwise. The light of the gospel shows me otherwise. And the light of the gospel also shines a light in front of us, I would say, on the path ahead of us. There's many things God doesn't clarify about what's going to happen or not happen in our life. I don't know what difficulties lie ahead of you. I don't know what difficulties lie ahead of me. God doesn't shine a light in that sense where he reveals every single step along the way and everything that's going to take place. But he does shine a light to the future, to eternity, where we know that someday we will be with Christ himself. Someday we will be with God himself. Ahead of us, if we are Christians, if we're united with Jesus, ahead of us, that light of the gospel shines a light to our ultimate resurrection someday, right? To the return of Jesus someday, to the establishment of his kingdom someday. There's this light of the gospel shining far ahead of me, and I can see that, and I can know that. I can bank on that, and I might not know what's between here and there, but I know that that day is coming. And Paul is saying, look to what God is doing. Look for the unseen things that God's already doing in your life. And then look to those things that you know he is going to do someday. And those will help you to manage. They will help you to walk through the, the, the difficulty and the trials and the pains and the sufferings that you have in this life. And without that perspective, you will lose heart. 
That is, the, our nature as human beings is to lose heart when pain and suffering come, but the gospel gives us hope. It gives us confidence to face these things and to know what is ultimately coming. It is the only thing that can make him say that these sufferings are light and momentary. He's not trying to be trite about the pains that we're dealing with and just say they're no big deal. He's saying that in comparison to the glory that will be ours, that these things are light and momentary. That should not just make us feel like we can be dismissive of the pains and hurts that people have, but it should make us excited for the glory that's to come, right? Like, it should make us, like, if we think these things are bad so much that we despair and that we feel weighed down, and he's saying the glory that we will receive and be part of puts that to shame, like, it it makes it feel like a grain of sand, then we should have this expectation and hopefulness and excitement about the glory that will be ours someday. So the light of the gospel doesn't provide us all the answers we want, but it does provide us with the ability to see rightly, to see the things that are unseen, and to walk in faith. Anytime that I prepare to to preach, I I often think about what might have been going on in the author's mind as he was writing that particular text. Think about what God had done in his life, things he had seen, things he had heard. And it's speculative, I know, but it's interesting to think about what sort of events might have been flashing through his mind. Uh, And one thing that I think may have been flashing through Paul's mind, I don't know why the Lord brought this to mind, but was... uh, one event that kept coming to mind that, that Paul had witnessed that I think may have been in his mind as he wrote 2 Corinthians 4 was something that happened in Acts 7. And it was the, this is dark, I know, but you'll see where I'm getting at. It was the murder of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. And what had happened there, I want to read this for you and then I'll close and share why I think this may possibly have been in Paul's mind as he wrote 2 Corinthians 4. If you read Acts chapter 7, this is in the early church. This is this, one of the first deacons in the life of that church in Jerusalem named Stephen. He gives this eloquent speech. He's brought before uh, this, this fake jury of sorts who weren't really going to give him justice. But he, he's brought uh, forth to, to speak and to defend himself even though they knew what they were going to do already. And he gives this eloquent speech about the history of God's people and how uh, things that God has done. And then at the end of it, And Paul was there when it happened. At the end of it, it says, I'll just read this paragraph to you. Acts 7, 54 through 60. It says, now when they heard these things, these things that Stephen had been saying when he started to confront them about their crucifying of Jesus. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said and they probably thought he was nuts when he said he said behold I see the heavens opened and the son of man is standing the son of man standing at the right hand of God but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the guy who wrote 2 Corinthians. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The reason I think that may have been in Paul's mind is just, he was there, this is before he was converted, obviously. He was watching the jackets of the people who threw stones at this man, Stephen. 
And I bet as he heard Stephen saying, I see Jesus at the right hand of God, I see it. he probably thought, this guy is nuts. Like, God, God's not even protecting him from us. Like, who does he think that this Jesus is? Who does he think that he is? Look at this clay pot. Like, look at this guy we're about to smash. And that they did smash, quite literally. A room, they're just looking at the things of this earth and saying, what a pathetic guy. Like, standing up for this Jesus who's not even standing up for him. But Stephen saw that Jesus was at the right hand of God. He had perspective that nobody else around, including Paul, had at that moment. He could sit, see into the heavens and see the resurrected Jesus who had died for him and been raised for him and who was smiling over him even as he was about to suffer and die. And that perspective is what allowed Stephen to suffer. That's what allowed him to be able to persevere in faith even to the point of death. Is because of what he saw in the heavens, of seeing the unseen, seeing what no one else could see. And we have the same access. Jesus is still at the right hand of God the Father. And you may not physically see him there like Stephen did in his vision, but he is no less there. See the unseen. Like have your eyes to know the things that are true in your life even when affliction screams at you otherwise. See that the resurrected Jesus, one who died for you, has been raised for you and is interceding for you right now. Trust him even in the face of trial. Trust him even in the face of suffering. We are jars of clay, but we are containers of the gospel, aren't we? Like we are these frail pots, but we have the light of the gospel within us. And that is what allows us to press on through affliction. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more song. And then we are going to uh, hear a word of benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. But join me in praying. I invite you to stand as we pray to our God. Father in heaven, we clay pots uh, we come to you this morning with cracks, with holes, or with at least the, the threat of those things. We feel our fragility. We feel our weakness. And some come to you even this morning with affliction. We come to you with pains and trials and griefs and burdens that we are bearing. God, we are thankful that you have not left us hollow. You have not left us empty but that even though uh, we can be crushed and someday we will be crushed by death, we are grateful that you will raise us up and that you are present within us even right now by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us perspective and that you give us perseverance. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.